Father, thank you so much for the chance to be back together. Lord, we thank you for the fact that I know I and many others have been looking forward to this, and we thank you for the time that you've given us to take a little break and uh, spend time with family and, and travel and whatever else that's gone on in the previous weeks. Lord, again, we're excited to spend some more time in your word. We thank you that we get the privilege of being alive in these days and get to see some of these things we read about actually taking place. Uh, at the same time, Lord, we thank you for the fact that uh, you're, you're preparing us ahead of time for what we're going to be living through and, and going, going through in these days. And at the same time, we look forward to you coming and getting us. So, Lord, with all that in mind, may you speak to our hearts and help us to see what you would have us see as we continue our study of your messages to the churches and how they apply to us as well today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. Open up to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 18. We're going to read verses 18 through 23 and break that section down. Then we'll finish that message to the church there in Thyatira and uh, move into Sardis. For those of you that came in late, we will be dealing next week at the very beginning of the study about the blotting out of the book of life. So those that are curious about that, we will be doing that at the very beginning of next week's study. We won't have time tonight uh, because of how much other stuff we have to take a look at. Let me read it to you here, starting in verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, and your service and your perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensive, intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, and then all the children, so all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now we're going to stop there and deal with what's going on here, uh, but you look again, as you've been having... As we've been doing each time we've, we've studied a new message to a new church, we look at how Jesus describes himself. Because how he describes himself will give you a heads up as to the tone of the message, or how to even interpret the message to the church. And uh, in this passage here, how does, how does he describe himself here? And he does something that he's not done before in the messages to the churches. How does he describe himself here? The Son of God. Now think about this for a minute. Um, he is described in the New Testament 47 times as the Son of God. So it's not like he's not been called the Son of God before. But this is the only time in the book of Revelation that he calls himself the Son of God. Now, it talks about how God is his Father in a passage in Revelation chapter 1 and that kind of stuff. But what do you think Jesus is trying to communicate? What do you think he's trying to do by starting this message off to this church in Thyatira as this is coming from the Son of God? Any idea? He's got the authority to be saying these things. Authority, exactly. It's, it's, it, he is, he's communicating authority by saying these are the words of the Son of God. And then also goes on to say, His eyes are like blazing fire and His feet are like burnished bronze. Uh, we can see here, uh, go to Revelation chapter 19. Put a bookmark here in Revelation 2. Go to Revelation 19, verses 11 through 15. Someone read verses 11 through 15 for us. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. 
he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name in the word is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which it strikes down the nation. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has their name written. All right. In this picture here again, we see Jesus coming when he comes, his literal coming to the earth at the second coming. You know he's going to come and gather his church at the end of the church age. And then at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, he himself is literally going to come down to the earth and set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. And when he comes, you see a picture he's coming on a white horse. But again, we see the eyes of blazing fire. What is this a picture of? Judgment. It's a picture of judgment. And so now, Jesus has started his letter off to the church in Thyatira by saying, this is coming from the Son of God, and and my eyes are like blazing fire, and my feet are like burnished bronze. And so it's very interesting that he would clarify those aspects of who he is. Again, remember John in chapter 1, he turns and he sees Jesus, and again, we see a picture that his eyes were like fire, and his feet were like bronze, and that picture there. But Jesus is illustrating and emphasizing these aspects of him, because he's now going to be bringing a very serious message to the church in Thyatira. He, he goes and he compliments them, he goes, I know your deeds, and your love, and your faith, and your service, and so on, your perseverance, and that you're even now doing more than you did at first. That, that's a good thing. There, there's been growth in this church. But nevertheless, and he has to get to it pretty quick, he said, you've got a serious problem in the church here, and you're tolerating this woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and by her teaching she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, I'm going to take a little bit of time right now just to kind of give you a little background into the city of Thyatira and what was going on. Interestingly enough, uh, they were actually known for producing and making some very nice bronze or brass, whichever you want to call it. And actually, the word used in the Greek here of burnished bronze is actually only used here and, and, and not any other places in much Greek literature. It's a certain kind of a bronze work that this city was known for. And how it's, it's kind of interesting how Jesus describes his feet as this very high-quality bronze or brass. And uh, at the same time, this was one of the first cities where actual... Uh, um, uh, Marketplaces started to get set up and, and, and trade was going on and they were very well known for these types of things. And But they also set up what they called guilds, similar to what we would call a union, kind of a thing, a picture nowadays. But what it was is all the merchants would be, have to be part of these guilds. They were kind of societies where they worked together and they'd all pay in to be a part of these guilds. But in, upon doing so, it made it possible for you to have connections, business dealings with other merchants and all this kind of stuff. But they would only deal with the ones who were a part of the guild. Do you understand what I'm talking about? And now a part of that guild thing, though, where there, were, there was worship of deities. There was worship of false deities, of course. There's only one god, but there were these worships of deities. And once a year, they would have to go to these call them conventions or whatever you want to call it, where they'd come together and they'd have food sacrificed to this deity that was the deity of their guild. Because if there was the metal workers guild, you know, the, they'd have a deity for the metal workers. And if it was the, you know, the cloth merchants, there would be a deity for the cloth merchants. And unfortunately, if you were wanting to say that Jesus is the only God and I don't want to be a part of this guild, they would make it almost impossible for you to do business because they would only do business with people who were a part of the guild. And then, as you know, as I just said, 
they would also once a year have to have this ritualistic time where they would get together and have a ceremony where they would offer food to this god and then they would have it then served and everybody it would be a gift from the god back to them and you see the eating of the food off, you know, offered to idols and also unfortunately a part of these conventions were a lot of sexual immorality and the priestesses would come in and all this kind of stuff and the sad thing is as bizarre as it sounds it's not a whole lot different from some of ours today are they? Oh, no. I mean what, what are, what are, th- what are a lot of our business is known for when they get together at convention. Kind of the partying and the wickedness and the licentiousness that goes on and it's just kind of understood and accepted. You know, if you're going to be in the business, it's just what do you got to do? And the sad thing was now there was a lady in this church, whether her name was literally Jezebel or whether or not she was a, you know, a lot like the Jezebel of the Old Testament, we really don't know. It depends on who you ask whether or not they say it's, she was actually named Jezebel. There was a lady in the church who called herself a prophetess who had been allowed to teach in this church that this kind of living was okay with God. And it was tolerated in the church. Now, if you remember, in Ephesus, you had the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which they hated. But then when you got to the church there in in Pergamum, uh, what happened? There were some in the church that held to the teaching of Balaam, which he had had taught them to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and sexual immorality. But now, instead of one or two in the church holding to these kinds of beliefs, it's being taught. It's approved of by the church. The church knows about it, and they're letting it go. And Jesus says this is a serious problem that has to be dealt with. Folks, we can go into great detail nowadays how we see that happen in all of our churches. I mean, let's just take the practice of homosexuality. I mean, the Bible's been very, very clear from day one that that is not a sin that is approved of by God. Unfortunately... You know, unfortunately, over time, there have been some that have felt that God was okay with it. There but has sins. it not? I'm sorry? There are sins that have been approved. <laughs> exactly. What do you say there are no sins that are approved by God. I think in my, in, in my sarcasm, you understood what I meant. But what I'm getting at, though, is this. Nowadays, it's not only being accepted by some. It has been taught by churches. As, as tolerance. As tolerance. <laughs> Like you were saying about you know? Jezebel, I'm like, woo, it's yep. just like today. Yeah. Let's teach tolerance. Let's teach tolerance, and that's okay. And if you actually were to say this is not right, you're, you're tolerant. not tolerant. Unfortunately, the definition of tolerance has changed. You do realize that, right? Uh, years ago, toler- to tolerate something meant you did not approve of it, you just ignored it. Now it means that it's as equally valid as what you believe. And for you to say that it's wrong, is intolerant. Before you could be say it's wrong, but tolerate it. Now you can't say it's wrong. Go ahead, Jeff. You want to say something? The word in the Greek is is to let it be, as in we won't look at it. Just, yep. just ignore it and let's pretend it's not there. Yep. And Jesus says you can't do that. Now, for you two guys that were here this afternoon, and for Jeff who was there this afternoon when I taught about this a little bit at the men's meeting that I speak at on Tuesdays, we're going to go down a road a little bit that I went down this afternoon, and I want to go down it with the rest of you, because there's a very important lesson we have to deal with right now as we get to this issue of dealing with sin. And let me just set it up for you by this. I have been grieved over the last few months, and very strongly God's been speaking to my heart, about the way in which Christians are treating each other in these last days. Now, the Bible's very clear that in the last days there's going to be a lot of false teaching. We have to know the Bible says it's going to be that way. And even Timothy talks about how there's going to be doctrines taught by demons that are going to be creeping into the church. 
The Bible is very, very clear in the book of Jude that we are to contend for the faith. We are not to allow this. We are to stand up for truth. The problem that I want to deal with today is the fact of the fact fact of the fact that Christians today who are contending for the faith have become contentious. And the Bible says that we're to contend for the faith without being contentious. Alright, so in this situation, Jesus says, you've got a situation in the church that, as Jeff just pointed out, you're just letting it be. You can't let it be. You must deal with this issue, okay? Now, there are those who say, wait a minute, doesn't it say in Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus talked about the parable of the weeds and the weed, or the wheat and the tares, that we're not to try to separate the wheat and the weeds, just let them grow up, and then at the end of the harvest, the angels will separate it. And there are those who try to say that, hey, that's not our job to try to weed out the bad and the good, that just let them grow up equally. Well, I want to show you that that is a misinterpretation of that passage because they're trying to make the weeds and the wheat, or the field, the church. And I want to show you by having you look for it for yourself, in that parable, go to Matthew 13, the weed and the wheat and the, the, the field is not the church. The field is the world. Look closely, and there's a big difference. Alright, so in Matthew 13, start in verse 24. It said, Then Jesus told them another parable. It said, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. And went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weed also, weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. And the servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring them into my barn. Now jump down to verse 36. Then he left the crowd and he went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man, it's Jesus. The field is what? The world. And the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, don't let anybody tell you that in the church we're not to disseminate truth from error. We're not to say this is wrong and this is right. By using this passage, there are those who say, well, Jesus said that we're not to try to separate the weeds and the wheat. No, 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 no. That's, that's believers and unbelievers. There's a big difference, okay? And so, yes, the church's job is not to go out there and point out all the evil of the world. Unfortunately, we think that is our job, but it's not. Our job is what? Hopefully you know the answer to this question. 
to show the light, to glorify God by pointing the, sharing the good news of the fact that the whole world, apart from God, is evil. But the, their good news is this, that even though we're all guilty, even though we're all sinners, even though we're all worthy of the wrath of God, God has in His love, in His mercy, already provided a way in which man can be forgiven and set right, in which Jesus has already come, He's already died for the sins of the world. Those people out there that don't know the Lord, they just need to know the good news is their sin has already been paid for. They just need to respond in faith. The problem is, the church thinks it's our job to start pointing out how evil everybody is. And it, don't you run across that a lot? Unbelievers think that the, the church's job is to tell them how bad they are? Man, that's the Lord's job to convict of sin. Jesus Himself said when the Holy Spirit comes, He will convict the world of sin in regard to guilt. He'll convict them their need, of their need for righteousness. He'll convict them of the fact that there's a coming judgment. Our job is to, in the joy of this great news of knowing that we too were just as guilty, understanding that God has opened our eyes to this wonderful salvation, to share this good news that the price has already been paid. When the world acts like the world, they're just doing what they know how to do. And I've often said, they're doing the best they can. Yeah. <laughs> they really are. What else do they know? They don't know anything else. So don't go out there and berate them for, oh, the world is so wicked, the world is so sinful, like we're better. The only difference between us and them is the fact that Jesus has forgiven us. And hopefully the Spirit of God lives within us if you've trusted Him as your Savior and you're allowing Him to live His life through you. But apart from Jesus Christ, we're just as guilty. I'm not going to ask for you guys to confess anything right now, but don't you till, still struggle, even as a Christian, with some of the stuff that they do? We would never want to admit that. I mean, because we're supposed to all be, you know, perfect. And, you know, we go to church in our Sunday best and we, hey, brother, hey, sister, and we don't act like we struggle with some of those things. But you know what? There are people in the church that still struggle with alcohol. There are people in the church that still struggle with sexual immorality. There are people in the church who still struggle with many of the same issues, drugs or whatever, even homosexuality. There are people in the church that still struggle with that. But the difference is we've been forgiven by Jesus Christ. We've been washed. And His Spirit is now changing us and making us more like Jesus Christ. And it's a process. It doesn't happen just like that. Your salvation happens just like that. But Him conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ is a journey that you are on. If you think that it's just supposed to all happen tomorrow you're going to be a very miserable Christian. Because you know what? Paul himself even said, the things I want to do, I don't. The things I don't want to do, I do. Who can save me from this body of flesh? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ who gives us the victory. He understood who he was still. So don't think it's your job to go tell the world how evil they are. I read a quote today by John Eldridge where basically he said, we are in a love story set during a time of war. Yes. That's a good picture of it. So the wheat in the weeds is just saying that we're not to go out there and try to pull up all the evil and get rid of the evil. No, but in the church, let me show you a couple of passages that says that if there's evil or false teaching in the church, it must be dealt with. Or false living, it must be dealt with. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, in this passage here, you see in verses 1 through 8, uh, Paul's been dealing with this man in the church who's been sleeping with his father's wife. Probably not his mother, but it's his father's wife. By the way, for all of you that ever hear anybody says, oh, to go back to the days of the early church, they've never read their Bible. Yeah. 
I don't want to go back to the days of the early church, folks, to be honest with you. (laughs) There's nothing new. Uh, Paul had to deal with people who were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Uh, There's a man here sleeping with his father's wife, and the church thought it was cool. Uh, They're as messed up as we are, okay? So don't don't get sucked into that one. But look at what Paul writes here in verse 9 of chapter 5. He said, I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy, the swindlers, or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. Alright? He's not saying have nothing to do with the wicked people who don't know the Lord. They need to see the light. We need to live among them, just not be of them. Okay? But what he's saying, though, is, but now I'm writing that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler, with such a man do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Now, I'm going to ask you to stick with me here because we're about to dive into many different tangents from this that I want you to make sure that you understand that there's a difference, okay? We do know that in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says that if you who are spiritual see your brother in a fault, you're to go to them for the purpose of restoration, okay? Let's just say I, I see my brother Ken here in sexual immorality. I'm not to immediately run to not having anything to do with him. My first step is to do what? Go to him for the purpose of restoration and say, my brother, this isn't right. Now, Let's back up even further. As you've heard me teach, uh, when you've heard me, heard me teach on the eight principles, we need to have real biblical fellowship before that can even occur. Because nowadays in our church, because we don't know each other on that level, most of us, if we see our brother or sister in a fault, we go tell the pastor or a deacon or an elder, and we think they're supposed to deal with it. But biblically, it's those who have developed a relationship in which we've proven our love for each other. If Ken and I have been hanging out and we're loving each other, and he sees me in this type of a sin, he has already proven his love for me so that when he says to me, Jim, this isn't right, I don't hear judgment, I hear restoration. Right Now, if for some reason I don't listen to Ken... What does Matthew 18 say he's supposed to do next? Bring somebody else. Again, don't go run into the pastor. Don't go run into a deacon. Don't go run into an elder. There should hopefully be more than just me and Ken. Say, Chris is in our small group, if you will, and we've been hanging out. He would then say, Chris, come with me. I've already talked to Jim about this. He doesn't want to listen. Maybe the two of us will be able to help him understand this isn't right. Okay? Now, if for some reason I still say, I don't care. I think what I'm doing is all right. What's the next step? Then you bring the church into the issue. Alright? But the problem is, most of us today in our churches, we know where everybody sits, we know where everybody parks, we, but we really don't know each other to that level that we really can't apply this kind of relationship. And nowadays, even if a church did practice church discipline, which churches rarely do, even if one did and they said, well, you can't worship here anymore, that person would say, well, no skin off my back, I'll just go to Second Baptist or Calvary Chapel or whatever, and it has, it has no effect, but if we had had real biblical fellowship, and, and Chris got a nice big screen TV, and we're watching football games on Monday night at his place, and Ken loves to go fishing, and we go cast, surf casting on Tuesday mornings, you know, when the fish are biting, or we meet for, for breakfast on Wednesdays, or we've been hanging out together and then because of my continual disobedience, my brothers say, we can't have fellowship with you anymore. This has affected far more than my church attendance, folks. This has affected my life. The problem is the church today doesn't even practice biblical fellowship. We think biblical fellowship can occur once a month on Sunday nights in a fellowship hall. 
And as good as this Bible study is, you'll never get to a level of biblical fellowship if this is all there is. It's us getting together, knowing each other's names, and saying hi. Alright? This is awesome. But I'm going to challenge you. Get to know some people to that level. Now, didn't we study in Romans, though, that there's going to be disputable matters? That we're gonna, one's going to see one day more sacred than another. Others going to see every day alike. One's going to think eating meat's okay. Others going to think eating meat's not right. There are going to be issues in the Scripture which we're not going to fully agree on, which do not fall under the category of very clear Bible sin. Okay? Do you understand what I'm saying? In those issues, what are we to do? Are we to judge our brother or sister? No. No. Be convinced of what you know. Like, for example, I'm going to give for you right now the five basic non-negotiables of the Christian faith. Now, this is very important that you know this, because most Christians today don't. These are the five basic non-negotiables of the Christian faith. Okay? Everybody's writing it down. Oh, yeah, man. That's good. That's good. Because this will be a very good measure of whether or not you can call someone a sister or a brother in the faith. All right? There's some paper there if anybody wants this. All right? Here's the first one. The first non-negotiable is the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Folks, I don't know if you understand how important that is. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, you're still in your sin because He was not sinless, because sin is passed on to human, to human, to human, all the way from Adam. But the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin means that even though He had a human mama, He had God as His Father, and sin was not passed on to Jesus from Adam to Jesus. Okay? The virgin birth of Jesus Christ. There are those who say that that's not that big of a deal. It is. Okay? Second thing is, and I've got them listed here so it'll speed things up instead of me trying to remember them, is uh, the deity of Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus is God. There are those who claim to be Christian who say Jesus is not God, He's a Son of God. But they'll also say that you're a Son of God or I'm a Son of God. There are those who claim to be Christian who say Jesus and Satan were brothers. I hope Oh, no kidding. my life on this. That's right. Okay, so if someone claims to be Christian but does, does not believe that Jesus is God, not a Christian. Not what the Bible calls a Christian. Okay? We'll go into more detail on that, but hopefully you understand that. The third non negotiable is the inspiration of Scripture. You, you must believe that this book was written by God. Inspired by God, God breathed, what it says we base our life on every word. There are those who say, well, I take this part and I don't take this part. I like what these prophets wrote. I'm not sure I agree with what Paul has to say. I think, Paul, when you start questioning any part of this, you might as well throw the whole thing away. Because again, Jeff and I were having lunch today after the men's meeting with Tony Kessinger, and we were sitting there talking, and some people do teaching on you know the basic doctrines of the faith, and a lot of people start with theology and who God is. Tony says, I always start with bibliology because how do we even know who God is? From the Word of God. If you're not centered that this is the Word of God, you can come up with anything you want on doctrine of who Jesus is or who God is or whatever, but if it doesn't start with this, you're wasting your time. So they must believe in the inspiration of the Word of God that this is God's Word. Therefore, everything in it we must listen to. Fourth thing is Jesus' substitutionary atonement. Your salvation is solely by faith in what Jesus has done for you in your place. Now listen to me. There are some denominations out there that teach that Jesus did His part, but you have to do your part. 
There are those of us who have been taught that Jesus died on the cross, but we also have to do our part, like keeping certain sacraments, or we have to do our part and God does His part. Any doctrine that teaches that there's anything besides all that Jesus has done is not teaching biblical salvation. The substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ is a necessary tenet of what we believe. It's all been done by Him. We just say, thank you. I believe it. I turn from my sin. I acknowledge my need of a Savior. Jesus, my salvation, everything is totally based on the fact that you've taken care of it, not me. Alright? Now, I'm not going to go down this road for very long because it's just it's another whole study for another time. The sad thing is most of us who believe that don't understand it or don't really believe it as much as we think we do because all of us, trust me, especially if you grew up Baptist, we're still feeling like we have to live a certain way to make God happy with us. We don't fully understand that He has been totally satisfied in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible does say that we're to live our lives in a certain way, but unfortunately, I myself too have many years fallen into the pattern of thinking that maybe I needed to help Him a little bit. He's totally satisfied in Jesus Christ. And the last one is this. Jesus' bodily resurrection and His second coming. They're combined. Jesus' bodily resurrection and His second coming. Jesus literally rose from the dead in a real body. One that could be touched. One that could eat. One that the woman could grasp and hang on to and he'd say, don't hang on to me. One that he could say to Thomas, put your hand in my side. Touch my hands. There are those who say that Jesus' death was more symbolic. I mean, resurrection was symbolic. There's others who say that it was kind of a mirage. No. He literally, because the Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He rose from the dead according to the Scriptures. And He's also coming again. Now, do we all in Christendom agree on the timing of His return? No. No. That's a disputable matter. That's not one that we have to break fellowship with each other over. I'll share with you as I have as we go in this revolution, revelation study where I stand and why scripturally I believe but you must believe that He is coming again. Okay? That's a biggie. When? Don't worry. Don't worry about breaking faith over that. But there are things like sexual morality or drunkenness and these types of things. When we see sin in the church, don't act like let it be. Part of the reason why we let, let it be is we don't have biblical fellowship and we know we really don't have the place or feel like we don't have the place. And that's why we let the big guns come deal with that stuff. It's easier to sit in judgment. It's easier to sit. And gotta remove that bond from your from your own That's right. Your heart is right to go to your brother. So it's a lot easier to just sit and be all pious and religious and judge them instead of love them with Christ's love. That's right. So let me show you real quickly, though, one last aspect of this, and then we'll move on in our study of Revelation. I thank you for your listening to this. It's an extremely important issue. The parable of the weeds and the wheat does not deal with the church. It's talking about we're not to try to weed out the, the, the evil in the world. Okay? The Bible teaches that we are to deal with sin in the church. It must be dealt with. You've got to get to biblical relationship with each other first before you understand that the reason for why you're dealing with it is in the first of all hopes of restoration. Okay? So let me show you two quick passages that show this. And, but in order to go there, I want you to go back to Revelation 2. And I want to show you something. If for some reason in your dealing with sin in the church, the person does not respond, do not think it is your job to convince them. Do not think it is your job to punish them. Do not think it is your job to make things right. Look at how Jesus answered this though. 
All right, he said, you've tolerated this woman who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she's led, misled people into sexual immorality. Look at verse 21. Look at, what's that first word? You're going to see that word come a lot. I, has, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Whose job is it to make it right? It's all God's. See, one of the problems, though, in, in Christendom today is... We feel like it's our job to make it right. And we start to vilify each other. We start to attack each other. We start to blog all over the internet about how evil someone is. and It's God's job to make it right. Our job is to deal with it. But let me show you how the scripture tells you how to deal with it. Go to um, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'll just show you this one place and then we'll move on. 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 22. It says, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. I'm going to read it again. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. But instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So if you see your brother and your sister in a fault, your job is to lovingly share with them the truth. If they don't listen, bring your brother or your sister. If they don't listen, there comes a point where the church needs to get involved. But otherwise, trust God to take care of it and to make it right. Because let's be honest. How many of you have been 100% correct in your understanding and interpretation of the Scriptures from day one? I'll put my hand down to you. We've all, over the years, come to realize some things we believed earlier weren't really true, and God has helped us get there. He's the only one that's going to get you to the next level of understanding. It's not your job. If you think you see something your brother doesn't see, don't think you can convince them by winning the argument. And there are lots of people out there that are right now fighting with each other in Christendom over certain issues in the church. And we think that if we get enough people on our side, we can win the battle. The Bible says, share with them what you believe and leave it to God. And leave it to God. Because the saddest thing is, in the midst of all this, John 13, 35 has just been ringing in my brain. I don't know if any of you know what it says. If I got it started, you'll, you'll be able to finish. Jesus said, by this all men will know that you're my disciples. By your love, one for another. And the sad thing today is we're not seeing it. We're not seeing it. In, the world doesn't see it. And in our desire to deal with false teaching, we're tearing each other apart. So, contend for the faith. But don't you dare be contentious. Don't you be known as a quarreler. Don't you be known as one who's just mainly out to win their argument to prove their doctrine. Hopefully you're known as someone that loves. Gentle. Kind to everyone. Oh, and by the way, do you remember how this verse started? Look at verse 22 again. 
for years I've always read that verse as flee the evil desires of youth as sexual lust. You know, because when I was young, that was one of my struggles with sexual lust, okay? Now here's the thing. As I've gotten older, I've also started to realize one of the things that was also struggling in my life as a youth was I thought I was right all the time. You know, when you're young, you think you know it all, don't you? And you have to get a little older to look back and realize, man, I didn't know anything. And a friend of mine, he said, pastors go through three phases. When they're young, they're a warrior. Then they become chief. And then they finally wise up and become medicine man. I'm finally moving into that third phase. Because in my life of ministry, over 20-something years of ministry, when I was young, man, I was a warrior. Everybody was wrong and I was right. But then I became chief because I was senior pastor and I get to call the shots. Now I'm moving into the realm of realizing my role is to just ask a few questions as I travel around the country and deal with churches and point them to the Scriptures and let God do the work. I'm more of a medicine man now. I'm not chief anymore. And so now when I read Flee the Evil Desires of Youth and Pursue Righteousness, Faith, Love, and Peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart, and don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments in the context, I see that those evil desires of youth might not have been as much sexual immorality or lust as it was pride. Which was what got Satan into trouble. Which is what got Satan into trouble. And that's why, by the way, in the, in the, the instructions and qualifications for those who are going to be in leadership in the church as elders or overseers or whatever, it says they must not be a recent convert. Why? Because they typically try to be warrior and think they're right and everybody's wrong. They need to have some time to season and realize, you know what, there have been some things over the years that I've taught that i come to realize later on, that wasn't even true. But you know what's neat? I can actually list for you, and I'm not going to, but I can actually list for you at least five things that I have come to realize that I have taught from the pulpit over the years that were not scripturally true. And you know what? God still uses me. And God cleans up all my messes. And He's going to get all His stuff done. Folks, when you think you have to win the the battle or you have to convince the person or you have to win the war, you're showing your small view of God. But if you're able to just share it and leave it to God, you have a big view of God. And thank God, I don't have to have it fully understood to be used of Him. Because some of you think that you can't because you don't fully understand it, Satan's whispering in your ear. And I can prove it to you this way. When Jesus sent out His disciples two by two to preach the good news of the kingdom, did they even have a clue what the kingdom was? No. 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 They even at the end of the three years, are you going to restore the kingdom now? They didn't even know what the kingdom was yet. But Jesus still sent them out two by two or 72 of them, and they didn't even know what the kingdom was. So don't sit back and say, as soon as I know it all, then I'll teach. Share what you know. And learn some more. And if you messed up, Thank God that He can clean up after us. Alright? That's a lot of stuff out of dealing with Jezebel. How are we doing time-wise? We're doing good. We're doing good. Alright, let's go back to Revelation now. And let's look at what He says to those who aren't in that issue. Or aren't letting it be and allowing or tolerating Jezebel. Verse 24, Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose on any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. 
He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Speaking of a previous prophecy dealing with Jesus' judgment at the end. And just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give him, this is the one who overcomes, and hangs on, it will give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, I don't want you to miss the irony here. Okay, These people in the church that did not tolerate Jezebel, who thought her teaching was false, who were saying, this isn't right, were they probably ridiculed in this church? Because look at, look at what he says here. Those of you who don't hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, chances are, these ones who were teaching this false teaching were acting like they were smarter, better, wiser, more knowledgeable. This is a deep truth that you just aren't able to understand. And these people who held to the truth were mocked. And Jesus says, if you'll hang on, I'm going to actually make you the judge. I'm going to make you the ruler. The ones that everybody thought was so stupid because they just believed the basics is the one that Jesus says, I'm going to make you the ruler. So, for those of you who are hanging on in these last days to the truth, to the basics about salvation by faith alone, by Jesus alone, those of us who aren't getting caught up in all this tongues mess and all this slaying in the Spirit stuff and all this deep secrets that we're missing out on, for those of you that are hanging on to the basic truth, one day God says, we're actually going to be judging and ruling. So who cares if they think we are unknowledgeable because we just stick to the basic faith. Hang on. Ironically, the ones that the world, those in the church say are ignorant will be the judges. Alright? So, don't look down on me anymore because one day... <laughs> go, go over Sardis. Go over Sardis. In the time we have left, I want to just deal with this one aspect of this. It's one of the passions of what I do in my ministry, so if you think I was wired and fit and fired up about what I just talked about, just wait. It says, to the angel, remember the angel is the messenger of the church in Sardis, right? These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot his name out from the book, blot his name out his name from the book of life but will acknowledge His name before my Father and His angels. He was an ear, let Him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, I want to do something a little bit different than we've done as we've looked at each of these. I want to kind of have you look at this from another angle. This, this letter, this book, we call the book of Revelation. The first part was written to who? The churches, right? Seven churches in, in, in Asia there. Now, do you think that they read it like we are? Where, in other words, there was the message to the church? No, they got their own letter. Do we know that? They were written to them. They were definitely written to them. I think there's a chance they were compiled just like we have it. There's a chance 
that the church in Sardis, in getting this book, read the message to Ephesus. And then they read the message to Smyrna. And then they read the message to Pergamum. And then they read the message to Thyatira. And don't you think they were kind of a little excited or possibly a little bit nervous when it came time to the message to them? There's a chance that they had read the other messages to the other churches. I mean, why not? It doesn't seem to break. In Revelation 1, I, John, saw this and was told to write these things. There's a really strong chance that each of these churches read the other message to the other churches. Go ahead. Verse 4 says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. It'd be kind of hard to say, okay, this is just the one. Right. It's got to be a compilation. So there's a real strong chance that this was written like this, and they read all the others. And it was written on a scroll. Exactly. You're not going to rip the scroll up. You're not going to rip the scroll up. So, so read it passed from church to church, you think? Yeah, definitely, definitely passed from church to church, and then and then they'd make copies. Yeah, they'd make a copy so for their own and then send it on. John did seven copies and it went out. No. We don't know exactly how that all played out, but we do know that they didn't have mimeograph machines, and so any copies that any copies that there were, any copies they were, they, they copied by hand. So chances are really strong that the Sardis church has already read the message to the other churches. Some have been good. Some have been not so good. And if word had spread, they probably would have even more than us understood some of these messages because they would have known probably who Jezebel was and whether or not her name really was Jezebel. All these things. And now it comes time for the message to us. And he doesn't do even a commendation. But again, don't jump to what he says yet. What's the first thing we're looking at when we look at the message to the churches? How does he describe himself? These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Remember, the seven stars represent the seven messengers to the churches. Call them the pastors or whatever. Whoever was given the responsibility of getting God's message to the church. But he also points out that he's the one who holds the spirit of God. The all-powerful spirit of God. This message now is going to have to do with this church's relationship to the Spirit of God. And then he says, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Now, is he talking physically? It's obvious that he's not talking physically or else he wouldn't need to write a letter to him. So this is a spiritual deadness. Yet, they think they're alive. Yet, they have the reputation of being alive alive. And folks, let me tell you, this is what I deal with when I do what I do. I live the life of an evangelist because I'm traveling from church to church, but I make very clear when I get there, I'm not here to preach to the lost. I'm here to speak to the church. God has sent me to get the church ready for the return of Jesus Christ and get them back centered on a big, awesome, sovereign God. And the problem is the church today, for the most part, doesn't even realize that they're sick or that they're dead. And so what I want to just deal with for now, and then the little time we have left, is what are some of these dead churches look like, or what are some of these things that will make us dead and us not know it? Okay? So what I'm going to do right now is... Do you think that, Go that for it. Sardis... If they truly were reading all these messages to the, the other churches, do you think if they had the reputation of being alive, that they believed themselves to be alive... 
and they were going, hey, we look pretty good compared to these guys. Oh, yeah? Probably. I'm sure. I, I really do. I th- I got that picture when you were describing that. I, yeah. I bet they were sitting there going, hey. We don't get any Jezebel teaching that kind of stuff in our right. church. We're going to do a lot better than all these other churches. Yes. Yeah. He really, he really, exactly. He doesn't really deal with things, Nicole. He really doesn't deal with any kind of issue, specific sin in the church. So they're probably thinking, we don't get any big thing in our church. So I'm going to give you three that I've seen, all right, that are out there in churches right now. The first one is this. Uh, the question I'm answering is this. What does this deadness look like in our churches today? The first one is this. It's comfort and contentment causing the church to cease to be always on the alert to the enemy. All right, I'm going to say it again. Comfort and contentment, which has caused them to cease being always on the alert for the enemy. Most of you could probably quote for us 1 Peter 5, verse 8 and 11. We're to be alert because our enemy is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, right? But one of the things that our enemy does is, is when we fall asleep, sometimes he lets us stay that way. His work is done. Because his work is done. If we become content and comfortable, why mess with us and cause us to wake up? Because when, when we're attacked, we usually call for the shepherd, right? But in some churches, they become complacent, comfortable. I know of churches that I have been to that they will tell you how much money they have in the bank. And they think they're okay because a lot of churches out there right now are struggling financially, but not us. We're fine. Attendance is up. Attendance is up. Folks, I'm going to tell you, the best place to be is continually, daily acknowledging your need of Jesus. Apart from Him, you can do nothing. And to be always on the alert. And many churches today have become fat and happy and they don't realize it. Because what they're looking for and what their definition of a good, healthy church is, money in the bank, honey's in the pew, and the facilities are kept up. They really think that's church. Alright? We're going to get into some other issues in a little bit. It's a country club kind of a mentality. Unfortunately, there's, there's a lot out there. And they don't realize that they're dead. And Jesus says, you're totally missing out on the things of the Spirit. Now again, don't hear me when you say things of the Spirit thinking we're going to run down some un- anti-biblical, charismatic kind of thing. I am a charismatic. But that is because the biblical definition of a charismatic means having to do with things of the Spirit or gifts. I understand the working of the Spirit of God through the gifts that He's given the church. I am impotent without the Spirit of God working His power through the gifts He's given me. I'm always looking for the gifts. And that's actually, by the way, one of the uh, principles of the eight principles of a God-centered church is really understanding the difference between volunteers and those who are called. Because biblically, there's no such thing as a volunteer anywhere in Scripture. Only those who have been called by God and empowered by God to do what they're doing. And a lot of our complacent churches, they're full of volunteers who are happy to just fill spots and keep the organization running. We won't spend a whole lot more time on that one. I want to move on to number two and deal with number two. Number two is this. Here's again what this deadness looks like in some of our churches. And it's number two is this. Traditions, rules, and policies become more important than ministry or the spirit's leading. I'm going to say it again. Traditions, rules, and policies become more important than ministry or the Spirit's leading. I 
have been to so many churches where when I walk in, one of the first people to greet me tells me that they are a charter member. I was on a mission trip in Australia, and as I was walking around and greeting the people before I preached in this church in Australia, this very dead church, a lady calls me over, she opens her purse, and she shows me a picture of her first Sunday school class that met in this building back in like 1902. And she was hanging on to it. And that was what she saw the church to be. The things that had been, and the rules, and the policies. One of the problems we deal with in our churches today is because of the fact that there is false teaching, because there are people out there who would do things we don't like, we quickly make manuals, and policies, and rules to protect ourselves from each other. Some of our churches make rules like this, that you can only serve on a committee for three years, and then you have to rotate off. Well, the reason we make these rules is because we don't want somebody to come in and get entrenched, and then we can't get them out. Well, if you have biblical fellowship and godly leadership, you can deal with those issues, but instead we make policies to protect ourselves. Well, sorry, the policy is, Duke, that you have to rotate off. Well, what if you've only been given one gift? And it's only in that one area. We've just told you by our policy, you can't serve for a year. Do you understand? And we think we're protecting ourselves. Well, go to Matthew chapter 15. Let me show you what, what the Scripture says about this in Matthew 15. verses 1 through 9. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Did you catch that? They're not, they're not saying the scripture. It's the tradition of the elders. They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might have otherwise received from me is a gift devoted to God, some of your translations call it Corban, he's not to honor his father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Now before I go any further, let me explain for some of you who don't understand what that is. The, the Jewish elders had made a, made a policy that if you were to devote something as to God... You didn't have to do anything with it. It was, it was untouchable because it was now given to God. Now, there would be people in the, in, the, in, the, in the Jewish faith there who had a mom or dad who were having financial difficulty maybe, and they could use some help. But in order to not have to help them, they would say, well, this has been devoted to God. I can't help you. Well, which, which supersedes? That tradition of this has been devoted to God made by the elders? Or the fact that the Word of God says that you're to honor your father and mother and meet their needs? Well, I think the Scripture supersedes the tradition. But they had made this policy. Oh, by the way, later on, they could, there, there was a way they could undo that devoted to God thing and use it for whatever thing they wanted. But the whole thing is Jesus just says, look, you're jumping on me and my disciples because they're not following your traditions. When you've got traditions and you've got policies that supersede the Word of God. And then he goes and makes this stunning indictment of them. He says, 
You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Some of you have heard me share this before, and if you have, I apologize, but I'm going to share it again. The best illustration that I can give you of the danger of making too many policies and too many rules in our churches is this. You've got First Baptist Israel that's been given a, the Ark of the Covenant. The wonderful, wonderful, glorious Ark of the Covenant. And in business meeting at First Baptist Israel, someone raises their hand and says, hey, God's given us this wonderful ark. We need to take care of it. I, make it a, I, I suggest a big motion here that we have a policy that we will never put this ark where it could be damaged, lost, or wet. Well, who's going to argue with that? That makes some good sense. I mean, everybody in the business meeting is going to go, well, yeah, I mean, that's good. Uh, all in favor of making it a policy now uh, in our bylaws that the ark can never be put where it's damaged, lost, or wet. Everybody votes unanimous. Then God says... I want you to take the ark and I want you to have the priest carry it and step into the river of Jordan at flood stage to cross it, to go across the Jordan River. Sorry, God. We have a policy. And God, you know and I know three inches of water running fast enough can knock you down. This is the flood stage of the Jordan River. If they carry that ark in it, they might fall down. It could get wet. But what about when God says, carry the ark ahead of you into battle? Without realizing it, in our intention to do service to God, we make a bunch of rules at our churches that hinder the work of the Holy Spirit. And He's not free to do what He wants to do. And we have to say to God, God, that's a good idea. Um, you're going to have to wait till the January business meeting before we can change that. Folks, we don't realize it, but there are a lot of dead churches who have crippled themselves because God is not allowed to work because their policies and their rules, which we have made to protect ourselves from each other, which again shows a very small view of God. Our policies and our rules supersede what God wants to do. And there are a lot of churches out there right now that are crippled by that. There's a third. That's the last one and then we'll wrap up. Another example of what a dead church looks like is they glory in past splendor, ignoring the present decay. I'm going to say it again. They glory in the past splendor, ignoring present decay. And I want to talk to you straight up individually now, not just your church. I want to talk to you individually. If the only stories of God's working in your life are in the past, this may be you. If the only stories of God's miraculous provision in your life are in the past, this may be you. When's the last time you totally depended on Him and He came through? Two hours ago. Praise the Lord. That's good. That's a good, healthy sign. You understand what I'm saying? But there's a lot of Christians out there today that the only thing they can tell you about God working in their life is back in. That's a bad sign, folks. Now we'll get into more of how to remedy it next week as we deal with all that. But what he says to this church is this, wake up. But again, how did he describe himself? The one who not only is controlling the messengers, but he's also the one that has control, if you will, of the workings of the Spirit of God. And that's how he's working in and through his church now. He saved us, and then he put his Spirit within us to move us, to lead us, to direct us. So do not let traditions, policies, rules conduct how you conduct yourselves. But the Spirit of God lead. How would you have us do it this time?
He's saved you, and He's given you His Spirit to control you, to lead you, to guide you. Let that be what controls how you do what you do. Lord, what would you have us do this time? Again, without me going into the detail of the principles, the first principle is, nowhere in Scripture does God ever do it the exact same way twice. Never. Yet, what do we do now? We look for the formula. We're out there looking for the churches that are doing it a certain way and hoping we can copy their formula in our church. Or, or we're doing it how God did it a hundred years ago. And scripturally, if you look through the Scriptures, the method that God used was different in each instance. It causes us to, one, not put glory in a method and give glory to a method God doesn't want to share His glory. And secondly, it causes us to say, Lord, what would You have us do this time? In 2 Samuel chapter 5, David inquires of the Lord how to fight the Philistines who had gathered in the valley of Rephaim. God says, go straight in and I'll give you the victory. In the next verse, verse 22, the Philistines gathered again in the same valley of Rephaim, but David inquired of the Lord again. And this time God says, don't go straight in, go around behind him. When you see the, hear the sound of the marching in the tops of the trees, that'll mean I've gone ahead of you to give the victory. Exact same valley, exact same people, exact same situation, but David was wise enough to say, how would you have us do it this time? The problem in our churches today is we see God work once and we think we've got Him figured out and we try to do it that way all the time. God does not change. His truth will never change. His principles do not change, but His methods do every single time. Why? Because He doesn't want to share His glory with the method and He wants us to seek His leadership, the leadership of the Spirit, with what He would have us do in this instance. Those of you that have raised children, I sure hope you understand that the way you did it with this kid might not be the way you need to do it with this kid if you're going to get good results, correct? If you make a policy for everyone in the same way, you're going to have your hands full of a mess, are you not? It doesn't work that way. Our Heavenly Father knows this far more than we. So as we come back next week and we look some more at Sardis, just let the Spirit of God speak to your heart for now. Could He be speaking to you? Is there sin in your life? As we looked at Thyatira, that's not been dealt with. The Spirit of God might have spoken to your heart. You don't need a brother or sister to come talk to you. The Spirit of God spoke to you right then. Get it taken care of. Get it settled. Because not only these messages to these literal churches and pictures of our churches today, there are also pictures of each of us in our walk to the Lord or where we may be. Let me pray for us. Father, again, thank you for this chance to come and study your Word. And Lord, I thank you for the fact that we've been able to be back together. Lord, bring us back again next week some more. And, and, uh, and if you don't come and get us between now and then, but if you, if you hold off for another week, Lord, we look forward to the fact that we get to be together. But Lord, put us together throughout this week even more than just between now and next week. Lord, help us to really build, maybe not even people here, but others in the body, real biblical fellowship, so you can do your work in and through us and we can encourage each other all the more as we see the day approaching. In your name we pray this, Jesus. Amen.